Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. Today's episode is a 30-minute panel discussion with three researchers from the Queen's Surveillance Studies Centre. Let me tell you a little bit about the Queen's Surveillance Studies Centre. The Surveillance Studies Centre, or SSC, aims to be a leading global hub for research on expanding surveillance practices. Through collaborative and international projects, the SSC promotes multidisciplinary understanding of a full range of surveillance and the issues raised by its increasing organizational centrality. Critically engaging the roots and growth of surveillance and surveillance societies globally and locally, the SSC tracks general trends as well as national and regional variations in colonial, authoritarian, and democratic societies. The SSC provides up-to-date analysis with a community of scholars, seeks appropriate modes of ethical assessment and democratic involvement, raises awareness with the public, and influences policy at every level. Let me take a moment and introduce the guests on today's panel. Dr. David Lyon is Director of the Surveillance Studies Centre and Professor of Sociology and Professor of Law at Queen's University. Dr. Lyon is credited with spearheading the field of surveillance studies, and he has produced a steady stream of books and articles on the subject. His most recent book, The Culture of Surveillance, Watching as a Way of Life, looks at the ideologies and practices of everyday surveillance. Dr. Lyon is also the principal investigator of the Big Data Surveillance Project, funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This study examines the relationship between big data and surveillance in security, marketing, and governance. Dr. David Murakami-Wood is the Canada Research Chair in Surveillance Studies at Queen's. He is a widely published specialist in the sociology and geography of surveillance and security in cities from a global comparative perspective, with a particular focus on Japan, Brazil, Canada, and the UK. His current research focuses on security and surveillance in smart cities. Dr. Murakami Wood is also the editor-in-chief of the international open-access, peer-reviewed journal, Surveillance and Society, and a co-investigator of the Big Data Surveillance Project. Mundori Ogasawara, could you say it again? Ogasawara is a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology. Midori's current doctoral project focuses on the colonial origins and consequences of identification technologies, such as ID cards and biometrics, in northeastern China under the Japanese occupation of the 1920s. Midori worked as a staff writer for Asahai Shimbun, Japan's national newspaper, for 10 years. She was awarded the Fulbright 
Journalism, a Scholarship, and the John S. Knight Professional Journalism Fellowships at Stanford University in 2004-2005. In May 2016, she was the first Japanese journalist to interview the NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, and she published a number of articles. So, welcome everybody. Thank you. Uh, David Lyon, let's, let's begin our panel discussion with you. Can you give us an overview of surveillance studies? What is it? Uh, where did it start? Um, well, you use the word overview. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. <laughs> overview. <laughs> Literally, from the French, surveiller means to watch over or to look over. And uh, that's really the starting point. Um, surveillance studies studies the practices of um, watching over, looking over. Um, and uh, the, if I give you a definition, I, I warn you that it's, it's a changing definition. It's a definition that has to keep encompassing new realities. But for a long time, I've used a definition like um, focused, systematic, um, and routine attention to personal details for certain kinds of purposes, whether those are for management, or control, uh, protection, entitlement, direction, influence, all those kinds of purposes. I mean, there has to be some purpose if we're talking about surveillance. It isn't just an idle gaze. It isn't just uh, a casual look. It, it's got to have some kind of systematic aspect to it to make it surveillance, and that's what we study. Um, it's this kind of thing that has, in fact, been studied for a very long time, and it's been around as long as human history. Um, but in the 20th century in particular, it became clearer and clearer that surveillance practices were taking up a larger amount of time in terms of organizational activity, and, of course, were being enhanced by com computer and uh, communication technologies. And so the area of study only got called surveillance studies somewhere around the turn of the century. Um, I wouldn't like to say when, but somehow we started talking about surveillance studies because a number of scholars were interested in, in thinking about the issues. Not just scholars either, people who were in law, people who were in policy, uh, people with political responsibility uh, were wanting to think more clearly about what surveillance is. So it's watching over and that can be as benign as uh, a uh, pool guard, a lifeguard standing at the swimming pool watching over others, and of course you rely on them watching over you rather carefully uh, right through to the um, NSA or uh, communi communication security establishment or uh, CSIS here in Canada who are looking at kind of high security questions and um, engaging in forms of surveillance. Now as soon as I say that, I realize that the definition that I started with could be uh, questionable because I talked about the focused attention. And one of the things that we have to talk about today is the kind of what, what, what gets described as mass surveillance. Right. Now, that's not exactly focused. So perhaps there's even a, a kind of ethical note in there and saying perhaps some of our surveillance should be more focused. But anyway. That's, that's enough for what surveillance studies is, as far as I can see. One of the things that struck me in listening to you describe uh, surveillance is um, the absence of the, the perpetrator. 
when I think of surveillance, I think there's sort of like an institutional force that's driving it. It could be the guards in a penitentiary or the government uh, watching traffic flows or that sort of thing. But your point about the lifeguard or babysitting, I guess that's also surveillance. And when you think about some of the electronic technology that we're seeing now, Alexa, and those kinds of things, would you consider that to be surveillance as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's surveillance dimensions to, to all these things and everything that is uh, part of the digital world today is by definition surveillance because so much is self-recording and uh, recording, storing, transmitting data that is um, arguably personal data. There again, we have to discuss what exactly we mean by personal data and that can be problematic. But yes, I agree with you. Um, the idea that we should look at who the uh, agency is is kind of wrapped up in my definition. The definition that I was using is one that uh, suggests a kind of operator perspective, what mm -hmm. the operator is doing. Surveillance is overwatching, it's overseeing. Um, increasingly, I think today we have to talk about the ways in which we experience surveillance, not just how, as it were, they watch us, but how we respond to that and how we end up even initiating surveillance ourselves, doing surveillance. I mean, social media gives us many opportunities for very high technology uh, enabled forms of surveillance of others at a, at a very mundane level. So, as I say, the definition has to in incorporate, has to encompass rather a lot. And it's also important to think about the distinctions within that, whether we're talking about a kind of top-down vertical surveillance or a horizontal surveillance. Um, yeah, all these things are important. Maybe we can come back to the uh, topic of uh, how one's perception of surveillance has changed over over generations, and maybe we'll, we'll get to that later on in our discussion. But while I'm while I'm uh, talking with you, uh, David Lyon, I know you're a pioneer in the in the idea of social sorting, and I'm not sure I understand what that is. Can you explain it to uh, me and our listeners a little bit? Sure. By the term social sorting, we refer to the ways in which one of the key ways that surveillance works is to try to see uh, a population in terms of different characteristics that groups within that population might display. So if you are uh, in social work or community work, you might be wanting to distinguish between different parts of the population that are in needs of, need of different kinds of care, different kinds of uh, entitlements, and so on. So you have to have some kind of a system for indexing, for tabulating, for determining uh, who fits in which category and uh, what sorts of treatment should be given to each category. So it's social sorting has to do with dividing a population into groups so that they can be seen differently and so that they can be treated differently. And that's become kind of axiomatic for an awful lot of surveillance today, whether it is finding out uh, which would-be airline passengers at the airport may fall into some risk category. You're trying to divide, and therefore how you get onto a no-fly list is going to be part of that whole business of surveillance, which begins way back 
when you originally purchase the airline ticket. It doesn't start when you are lining up for uh, check-in. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that we mean. Right through to differential pricing in the marketplace. So if, if you're marketing, you're looking more and more for smaller and smaller niche markets that you can address. And so marketing in that sense is also highly surveillant and, and marketers uh, will recognize that that's the, that's the case. But it can, in certain circumstances, lead to not just differential pricing or differential experiences of uh, the consumer or the customer, but it can also lead to uh, some severe discrepancies in the expectations, for example, that consumers might have of it being a, of a marketplace being a, a level playing field. Right, and also the ethical boundaries. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, let's let's move move, uh, move on a little bit and deepen what uh, David Lawrence has just pre presented. I'd like the three of you to uh, to give our listeners kind of a historical and cross cultural perspective. Uh, Midori, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the research that uh, you've done. I know you were uh, focusing in on China in the 1920s. Can you talk a, a little bit about that? And and then uh, David Marikami, perhaps you can talk about uh, smart cities a little bit. Sure. Uh, so I've been researching uh, Japanese national identification system, and then my PhD project is uh, focusing on the colonial colonial roots of the Japanese ID system. So because it's the the first time for the Japanese to introduce the mass uh, techniques of the identification, and when they occupy Northeast China, it's called Manchukuo. Uh, in after the nineteen actually nineteen thirty two. And, but they uh, already uh, um, had uh, some economic interest in the same religion. So they were developing, actually, the introducing fingerprint and then also the um, uh, ID card system um, to, to uh, their own, uh, mainly like two reasons uh, why they introduced that uh, uh, forerunner of the biometrics today uh, at that time because they uh, first uh, wanted to use the uh, Chinese population as a cheaper labor than the Japanese. And then also they wanted to preempt the resistance uh, from the Chinese people. So the Japanese, both industries and then also the, the bureaucrats, I mean, the elites, they wanted to carefully eliminate the, the, the potential resistance in advance. Was one of the unique things about this particular situation that the oppressors or the uh, invaders developed this this uh, uh, technique of fingerprinting and use of the IED cards, or did they simply borrow what was already there and apply it on this mass mm -hmm. scale? So fingerprinting was actually uh, originally invented by the British police in India. And really? in Japanese, yeah, and in Japanese, learned that technology, how that was adopted in India and then also in South Africa. Uh, when they uh, the using the Chinese workers in the South African mining. And yeah, my study found uh, there is a connection between the British Empire and Japanese Empire, the how the colonial elites learned that technology, you know, what's the best use. And because I think uh, the colonial elites, they are also always very suspicious about the indigenous population. You know, they're going to get the, they are to always trying to smuggle something from the factory or they are trying to get the more welfare or, you know, that type of the typical suspicion was there. So they introduced 
introduce the fingerprinting technology not to the, for the criminal investigation like today. It's more for the like a mass population in general. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. David, let's let's have you talk a little bit about what's going on in in Toronto in the uh, the Kayside neighborhood. The whole range of th- what's going on with smart cities. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out that cities in general, I would argue, and I have argued, are mechanisms for surveillance. In fact, right from the beginning of history, they're not just, you know, these wonderful marketplaces that people think of. These are actually devices that are designed to concentrate people for control. So Lewis Mumford, the great uh, independent thinker and scholar, famously said these are structures that uh, appease the the paranoia of kingship. So essentially, they create spaces where people can be controlled together and can be watched over. So cities in some ways, amongst many other things, are a surveillance device, a mechanism for encouraging surveillance. So in that sense, I don't think we should be too surprised that we're seeing all kinds of different forms of surveillance being introduced in cities today. This is not, this has thousands of years of history behind it. However, there's a lot of differences. So what we're seeing now, first of all, is a kind of change in the way that uh, in who is actually promoting these sort of forms of surveillance so we're seeing in the case of the quayside the waterfront in toronto um, this is basically a google company it's an alphabet based company sidewalk labs Um, it's uh, staffed by a lot of people who used to be involved in the bloomberg administration in new york and in some ways can be seen as an employment scheme for ex-bloomberg employees bloomberg being the The mayor of new york and the and the and the big business news uh, supremo right and almost everybody involved at the top level of Cyborg Labs was an ex-Bloomberg employee and was involved in his administration in New York City. So it, they, they think they've got the experience from, from running New York and also from the business side of Bloomberg to then basically go out there and tell other cities how they should be running themselves. Um, this is the first thing. So it's a private sector initiative. It's very much part of this trend towards private companies moving into cities first as consultants, but increasingly as a kind of quasi-government. So you've seen this with business improvement districts or business improvement areas, as private sector slowly gets its tentacles into what we thought of as government for a long time. But the second aspect, of course, is the high tech. And this is where Google comes in. It's not just about the private sector saying we can run cities, it's how they can run cities. And how they're going to run cities is the same way that Google thinks it's running its advertising business more broadly. Remember, Google is an advertising business. It might be a convenient search engine for people, and that's how we know and love or hate Google. But, you know, the basis of that is making money through targeted advertising. And so the, the Sidewalk Labs project very much uses the same kind of basis. It's collecting lots of data on the people who are supposedly live and work there in order, of course, as far as they say, to best serve those people and provide them with a better kind of lifestyle. Um, but of course, this creates a huge amount of, uh, of data which can then be mined for all kinds of purposes. And of course, this is an experiment. It's the first of its kind, as far as Cyborg Labs is concerned, and it's designed to be a model. So it's not designed as a one-off. So we're seeing this combination of urban control, privatization, high-tech surveillance, data surveillance coming together um, basically to manage an entire space from a, what is effectively a tabula rasa, a blank space. There's nothing there right, at right. the moment. It's, it's interesting. In, in a way, it, it's, it's similar to that kind of paradigm shift that's happening from what surveillance was to how the pervasiveness of it is, is changing everything. And you know, when you, you mentioned uh, sort of the marketplace versus the surveillance device concept, we've got all this 
sort of data out there, but the question about accountability, who, who has the data, what's going on, um, what, can you talk a little about, yeah, a bit well, about that? Is there going to be some regulation? Are governments going to be looking in on this? How do we, how do we know what Google's going to be doing with this? Well, you know, in Canada, Canada is well known for having one of the most progressive systems of regulation of personal data in the world. I mean, apart from the European Union, which of course has just updated its, its uh, new general data protection regulations, which are world leading, Canada is one of the other best examples of you know how to regulate people's personal data the privacy commissioner at a federal level and our provincial information and privacy commissioners are well known for their really progressive stance on this and, and making sure that canadians data is protected that said you know they were designed and their regulations that govern them were set in a much earlier period so we're looking now at a time when those kinds of regulations that were designed for the 1970s effectively the age when we just had first started to know about databases uh, is now really out of date in, in the contemporary period. So they're not really equipped to be dealing with something as intense as what Cyborg Labs is proposing. And essentially what they, the big question, there's several big, I mean, there's so many big questions of accountability. One of them is the question of where this data is going to be. I mean, data, it doesn't just exist in the air, right? We talk about the cloud, the idea that somehow, you know, the internet is just a kind of, you know, floating out there somewhere. But this is as a physical geography, right? There are cables, there are server farms. Hard and drives. Hard drives, yeah, which are, server farms are huge yeah. amounts of, of hard drives put together, cooled by water from the oceans in various locations, often in California, but increasingly in more Arctic areas where the water is cooler. So Iceland is becoming a big location for these, for example. But, you know, there's a physical geography, and it means that this data is actually going somewhere that's not within Canadian jurisdiction. And therefore, it's debatable how much it's covered by existing Canadian privacy laws. You know, Canadian Privacy Commissioner asserts the right to govern that data, but if it's outside Canadian borders, there's very little in practice that can be done in terms of regulating what's done with that data and so on. So one of the big questions is where that data is going to be. You know, is, is, is Cyborg Labs going to store this data on Canadian soil? There's actually no answer to that question right now. This question has been asked. It's not been answered. In fact, at the public meetings where I've been um, discussing this, along with many other people with, with Cyborg Labs, they seemed unable and surprised to, to have this question, unable to answer it and surprised to have the question asked, which you know, means they haven't done their homework. Sounds like an, an emerging dimension for international law. That uh, this whole question of regulation. Could you comment you, on that? <laughs> You've got it. Let, let's just back up a little bit and, and make some connections. We were talking about social sorting earlier on, and the thing that links what Midori was saying with what David was saying is precisely social sorting. I mean, in the case of the uh, Japanese in Manchuria, the colonial uh, occupation in uh, Machu Picchu was that the identification system was that which would um, serve to determine the fate of different uh, people within the, you know, mm -hmm. Japanese, uh, sorry, the, the Chinese uh, subaltern situation. And uh, in, in that case, I mean, it was pretty stark. It determined who would live and who would die. And it would determine what sorts of labor they would perform and all that sort of thing. In the case of sidewalk labs, it's much more subtle and much mm -hmm. more difficult to work out because, you know, who is affected by these kinds of systems? Obviously, we don't know precisely in the case of sidewalk labs because the thing hasn't been... Uh, it's at a very early stage of uh, debate and discussion. But what we do know about exactly those kinds of systems is that they are also geared to uh, scoring and uh, rating and ranking 
the people whose data are being gathered. I mean, there is uh, a, a huge question of how people's life chances and the sorts of choices they can make are affected by exactly the sorts of systems that David's mm -hmm. talking about. So once again, the social sorting idea is something that is in common between them. And that, it seems to me, is why your question is so pertinent, that we do need to be thinking very carefully uh, I, I think in in the first case, case ethically about so so what is actually going on here? Do we talk in terms of rights? Do we talk in terms of uh, broader ideas like human flourishing? What what sort of we we don't have a good vocabulary yet to deal with some of these issues? And then in terms of regulating at least in terms of those who are most likely to be negatively affected. Uh, and once you've determined that kind of thing, then you can move forward with, uh, well, I think new kinds of what we currently call privacy legislation. I suspect that that's going to have to change too with the uh, rate of change and the magnitude of change. Uh, and we're talking here about a volatile uh, situation where corporations are perhaps dominantly involved, but governments are welcoming them, mm -hmm. and moreover, welcoming them in ways that suggest that some of what the marketing corporations can do, they could be performing uh, government type of activities yep. better than the governments. So, you know, it's a very volatile situation that we're talking about, and it calls for very careful thinking in the first place. I mean, we're offering a surveillance studies perspective. There are others that are parallel with that that I think are really important here. And maybe starting with something like Cyborg Labs is, is a good uh, microcosm, as it were, a good case study to, to try to develop some of the important uh, regulative. And some of it has to be regulation by corporations of themselves. There, there needs to be a, a, a new approach to corporate life here, I think, mm. but also governmental uh, and, and cooperation between different governments in determining what sorts of activities are important to try to rein in uh, negative consequences and also to allow the development of kinds of smart city activities that might actually be for the common good and human welfare and so on. Uh, my guests in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge have been Dr. David Lyon, Dr. David Murakami Wood, and PhD uh, candidate Midori Hagasawara. I got it right this time? Okay, thank you. Uh, the three of them are from the Queen Surveillance Studies Center. Uh, if you have any comments about today's discussion on the topic of surveillance, please email me, Barry Kaplan at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you very much for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. 
CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.